0: This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor makes it super easy to create a podcast. Record or edit right from your phone or computer, add music and effects, and then publish. With one click, Anchor will distribute your podcast to Spotify, Apple, and all the other platforms. And here's the best thing. Anchor will help you make money from your podcast by finding you sponsors. We use Anchor here on Talk Money, and it's everything we need in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now on to the show.
1: People don't think of college like a consumer service. They think about it as a right, like, oh, I have to go to college. Kids have a more passionate reaction to having to pay $2 extra for guacamole on their burrito than they do about having to take out $20,000 to go to a college. People just show up to college and say, it is what it is. They're not negotiating their tuition. They're not demanding that, hey, you guys need to get me a job. <laughs> yeah. I paid this amount of money. I expect this thing. they just like, OK, I showed up. <laughs> Hope it goes well.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Mesh Lakani, and welcome back to Talk Money. You just heard Kelly Peeler describing one of the fundamental flaws with how we think about college. Kelly's the founder of Money Mentor, a company that helps students navigate loans and financial aid. In today's episode, we're talking about student debt. The topic of student loans has taken over political, social, and business conversations. The $1.6 trillion outstanding student debt problem is affecting tens of millions of Americans. Concern is building about defaults and the collapse of the whole system. Kelly knows exactly how broken all of this is, and she built a company trying to fix it. So, why did she get into this in the first place?
1: I was in college at Harvard during the housing crisis in 2008. And I majored in the history of financial crises. So I took a job on Wall Street, and I was asked to create a portfolio with the view of trying to short the student loan market.
0: When Wall Street says to short something, it means that they're betting against it. They're going to profit if something goes down. Kelly was asked to figure out how to short the student loan market, which means her bosses, the titans of Wall Street had a feeling that that system was going to collapse next. It was Kelly's job to learn everything about student loans, what worked and what didn't work.
1: That's really when I started digging into the $1.5 trillion student loan markets and in doing so really kind of understood, oh shit, this feels like the next financial crisis. If
0: this all sounds familiar, that's because back in 2008, a few Wall Street firms bet against the housing market for the same reason they noticed that lots of people had mortgages they probably wouldn't be able to pay back. And when they did fail to pay them back, it had a domino effect. Mass amounts of mortgage defaults eventually crashed the housing markets, which took down the major banks and institutions, which then crippled the stock market, the job market, and the global economy. This time, if Kelly Peeler is right, the first domino is an average teenager headed off to college
1: at the age of 18, when you're a hormonal teenager, right? When you sign the student loan paperwork, you are essentially buying your first house. The average college student is graduating with over $37,000 in student loan debt.
0: You know this story, maybe you live this story. 44 million Americans are right now. Take a listen, does this sound familiar?
2: My name is Gabby, I am 27. So how did I get here? Coming from a family that I would be the first generation college student, I felt that I had to go out and and do better than my parents did. But I really truly had no idea what I wanted to do. So I, I spent, you know, just like any other high school graduate, you go to college because that's what everyone says that you should do. And so I ended up going to just a smaller university back home. And then I transferred to another university to pursue marketing. So we ended up taking about $25,000 in loans to cover like a year, which was insane. And then I ended up dropping out.
0: Dropping out after taking $25,000 in loans is definitely not your ideal situation. And the majority of student loan defaults are from students who do drop out. But what we all can relate to is not knowing what we want to do or switching career aspirations more than once. I know I switched my major three or four times in college. I had no idea what I wanted to do either. Millions of Americans share this story. And it's not because millions of Americans are bad with money. It's a systemic problem. And Kelly Peeler wants us to question the system.
1: A lot of times we see parents and students not really sitting down and like actually evaluating. They're just like, yes, this college, my dream school, I have to go there. And then they try to like figure out a way to reverse engineer how to make it work. And most of the time, it doesn't work.
0: So how did we get here? To the point where people feel like they have to go to any school they want, no matter what the cost. We'll hear more from Kelly later in the episode, including some of her solutions to the student debt problems. But first, let's do a bit of history. Let's go back about 80 years ago to the 1940s. The first
3: thing you need to realize is that people didn't go to college. Going to college was pretty
0: rare. Joel Best teaches sociology at the University of Delaware, and he co-wrote a book called The Student Loan Mess, How Good Intentions Create a Trillion Dollar Problem. Joel says before World War II, There was this sense that the people who got to go
3: to college were, for the most part, kind of privileged. There were a lot of jokes about, you know, you can always tell a Harvard man, you just can't tell him much. College was seen
0: as something that would have been nice, but was probably out of reach. Joel says at the time, some 5% of white males went to college, and even less for minorities and women. After the war is when things start to change.
3: You know, the country is in a good economic state, and there's the feeling that more people need to go to college. So the idea that you're going to spend money to send your kid to college really begins to capture a larger share of the population. There's a lot of
0: optimism about this. The GI Bill is introduced to help veterans of World War II go to college. That sends about half a million students to school who wouldn't have gone before, which is a lot, though not an insane amount. But in the late 1950s, everything changes overnight. The day Soviet
3: scientists jauntily drop-kicked the first Sputnik around the world, the average American was shocked, bewildered, and resentful. But the men who cope with... When Sputnik was launched in 1957, there's this tremendous panic. People are really shocked. And there's this kind of national crisis. What's wrong? How have the Russians managed to beat us into space? Here's one answer. Sputnik is a product of higher education, of instructors who teach much of the physics and mathematics in high school that
0: we teach in college.
3: The argument is, we must not be training
0: scientists and engineers the way that we should. Not long after Sputnik's launch, President Eisenhower addresses the nation. His message?
1: We need science. In the 10 years ahead, they say we need them by thousands more than we're now presently planning to have.
3: And so you get this, listen to the name, National Defense Education Act of 1958. It's very much aimed at supporting education for purposes of national defense. And one small part of that is a federal student loan program that is targeted for people who are going to major in science,
0: mathematics, engineering, and foreign languages. The space race brings about a whole new level of college enrollment which in turn makes college more attractive to all Americans. Graduate from college with the right degree and get a job. But costs remain a barrier. Soon enough, that challenge was tackled too. Only seven years later, Lyndon
3: Johnson, as part of the Great Society, promotes the Higher Education Act of 1965.
0: This bill completely loses the idea of national defense. And Johnson, who was a poor kid, knew the importance education had on one's life. A figure that was being thrown around a lot was that 200,000 kids a year, and smart kids, were skipping college because they couldn't afford it. So part of Johnson's Higher Education Act is a student loan guarantee for people to study whatever they want.
3: That is, we're not targeting the sciences. We're not targeting particular majors, particular kinds of schools. Any student can take advantage of this. And Johnson, who's very concerned about this, gives a speech. He goes back to his old school in San Marcos, Texas, and signs the bill there and says, you know, from now
4: on... A high school senior anywhere in this great land of ours can apply to any college or any university in any of the 50 states and not be turned away because his family is poor and is this popular
3: it it, nobody noticed to uh, to tell you the truth it's not a big deal Uh, i think the original act budgeted 15 million
0: (laughs) dollars you know it was there was it was not a lot of money nevertheless these student loan guarantees spurred enrollment we go very very
3: quickly to the place where you you have about 25% of white males. You go from 5% to 25% are going to graduate from college. And one of the things that really helps in the 60s is if you go to college, you have a draft
0: deferment. That creates a uh, real enthusiasm <laughs> for higher education. Meanwhile, the baby boomers are coming of age, a huge new population bump. And people of less economic means are attending colleges in large numbers. But they have a hard time paying for tuition, and borrowing becomes more important. Very quickly, the amount being borrowed every year rises dramatically.
3: And this turns into an issue very early on. I think in the late 1960s, there's an article in either Time or Newsweek that warns that students who have borrowed money from uh, Higher Education Act loans have defaulted on their loans to the, the point that it's over a million dollars. You know, that sounds hilarious today, but at the time, this is seen as a a very alarming development.
0: Within years after the federal student loan guarantee is created, the government starts cracking down, tightening restrictions on borrowers, ruling that you can't use bankruptcy to get out of your student debt. President after president through the Clinton administration rails against the quote-unquote deadbeat borrower. At the same time, going to college becomes more popular than ever.
3: This is a remarkable story. Nobody's paying any attention. They're so focused on deadbeats, they really aren't noticing that each year there are more people going to school, tuition is increasing, you're going to see loans increase and increase and increase.
0: Which brings us to a key part of the story. Why have tuition costs exploded the way they have? For one, state lawmakers around the country have steadily reduced their support for higher education. But the main reason is this. Because student loans are so easily available. The
3: colleges realize that their customers are not price sensitive. If you go to the mall and you decide to buy a shirt, you're going to shop in different stores and you'll be aware of how much the different shirts cost. and You're going to be paying attention to this. When you go to college, the the assumption is, hey, you gotta go to the best college you can, and maybe it's a little more expensive, but you don't need to worry about it. You're gonna have to
0: borrow anyway. Why not just borrow a little bit more? This is key. Colleges know that the price of tuition doesn't really matter to their customers. So they start using other things to attract them. New stadiums, special alumni events, cafeterias with made-to-order omelets. A lot of this costs money, which schools fund via tuition increases. And we pay for it, because we can easily borrow the money. The thing is, the increase in tuition has not matched the increase in our wages. It's a vicious cycle, and that's how we've gotten to where we are now. All of this is going on. And
3: sometime around the turn of the century, people start redefining the student loan problem, instead of talking about it in terms of deadbeats, they start talking about it in terms of crushing debt.
0: The very thing we're talking about today. So let's get back to Kelly Peeler, our student loan expert that we heard from in the beginning of the episode. She's the one who studied the student loan market and called it a financial crisis in the main. Kelly says there are three main signals that point to this crisis. The first is this cultural shift that we've described earlier. Today, almost everyone feels that they need to go to college. Kelly calls this a change in consumer identity.
1: So right now, to be an American is to go to college. That's what success looks like. Just like in 2006, the American dream was to own two homes. The second warning sign? You don't have credit to get a federal loan. You can be an 18-year-old kid, no credit, and still get a federal loan.
0: This is crazy. What credit is, is a measure of someone's ability to pay back a loan. When there's no credit history, there's not enough data to make a decision. The government now supports this idea that college is essential for success. No one should be left out. But the answer they land on is giving you a loan that they're not sure that you can pay back. Even if, especially if, you're a teenager who doesn't know what they want to do with their life.
1: Finally, Point number three, or theme number three, is a lack of consumer protection. No standardization, no interest rates listed anywhere. It's like not knowing the real cost of buying a car (laughs) or a house.
0: This is exactly what happened to Gabby, the young woman that we heard from earlier in this episode. She took out loans for a marketing degree that she never finished. And sure, we can say that she should have stuck with her major, finished school, but instead she dropped out. She did it to herself. But Gabby knows that. And her story is not unusual. It cost her thousands of dollars to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. It's not that previous generations wanted a house and a retirement account more than we do. It's that times have changed. And saving isn't possible for us in the same way it was for previous generations.
2: They have bought houses, they've invested in their 401k, in their retirement. And that's something that I think our generation has not been able to do simply because we are so burdened with student loans. And I think that's a huge, huge inhibitor to us really being able to get ahead financially.
0: As a member of Gabby's generation, I know we get a lot of flack for being bad with money, for buying lattes instead of saving for our future. And that's not a fair criticism. You should be able to get your double shot oat milk latte with a pump of caramel and have a future. Parents find this whole process confusing as well. The government and schools provide billions of dollars in financial aid. And a lot of people are not aware of it. What is FAFSA? What does that mean? How does it work?
1: Yeah, it stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. It's a form that you fill out or that you should fill out every year starting in October of your senior year of high school. And what it is, it's sort of like the main form that the federal government or university uses to get a full picture of your family's finances. And universities look at that and then they say, okay, here's what you qualify for in terms of grants and scholarships. A lot of people don't fill out the FAFSA and that has equated to on on a yearly basis a little under $3 billion of free financial aid that goes unclaimed because people do not fill out this form.
0: $3 billion. How many of us could have used that for both graduate school and undergrad? The other big mistakes Kelly sees students do is one, not comparing their financial aid packages and two, not negotiating their tuition. When you have options to go to different universities, make them fight for your money. This also applies to undergrad and graduate school too.
1: A lot of people don't know that you can do this. Uh, You can go to a financial aid office and appeal the financial aid package, and you can say basically like, hey, give me more money. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you can get into a better tier university and tell the lower tier university like, hey, I got into Penn. Can you give me more money so I don't go to Penn? And they'll be like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you're like family Uh, If like your dad gets in a huge car accident and loses his job, you could go back to the financial aid office and say, hey, this whole thing happened and that changes my family's financial picture. Can I get more money? And sometimes I say yes.
0: Our student Gabby would have benefited from all these points, if she was aware of them. But she wasn't, though eventually she did learn. Even though Gabby dropped out and changed her career path, she recently graduated from the Culinary Institute of America and she paid almost nothing for it. She took advantage of scholarships and financial aid packages. She didn't make the same mistake twice.
2: Yes, I have my bachelor's finally, but it, it was a long, really difficult, hard fought road to, to get to where I am. And would I change some of it? No, but then are there parts I would change? Absolutely. The part that I would change would be going to school so early on and taking out all of that money that I really didn't fully understand the magnitude of it when I was so young.
0: For those of you that are overwhelmed with the amount of student debt that you have, the solution is really to tackle it full force. Look your loans straight in the face and let them know you're coming for them. Get organized about it. Don't put blinders on. And for those out there who've bettered their credit and increased their income, you can possibly refinance your loans which means that you basically get your loans at a cheaper interest rate. Or you can consolidate your loans, which you take all of them and put them in one place. See what your options are. Take a look at Kelly's parent company, Common Bond. They do refinancing, consolidating, and they have great educational material. And speaking of looking your loans right in the face and taking them on, let's hear one more story of a guy who did exactly that.
4: My name's Charlie and coming out of high school I had no idea what I wanted to do.
0: Does this sound familiar?
4: I'm from kind of a rural area and grew up with a bunch of kind of uh, lesser educated fellows, let's just say that. Basically we live in the same town our whole life and work at the local factory, but my mother uh, forced me to look at some of these schools. So I went to uh, look at DeVry and they actually had a great sales pitch and being a teenager, I just, I didn't even read any of the fine print and just went along with the ride.
0: Charlie and his wife accumulated a large amount of student debt. And with monthly payments going only to interest, they weren't making a debt in them. And it was super stressful. They have two kids. So Charlie had to make a massive decision.
4: I had 112000 in this mutual fund. And my wife and I kept going back and forth. Should we cash it out? And, uh... I was trying to do some research online, and I couldn't find anyone that had anything positive to say about it. All I read was, don't do it, you'll make more money in the market, and so forth.
0: Charlie knew that cashing out his 401k would be met with a 10% penalty, and losing out on the upside of the market over the next coming years. But finally...
4: We decided to pull the plug. We decided to cash it out at 108 and take care of all of uh, all of our debt.
0: Charlie and his wife were ecstatic. They paid off their debt in one go but their retirement savings are gone. In a sense, they mortgage their future for the sake of their present. The upside is they have time to rebuild their nest egg, and the stress of their loan payments being gone should help them with that. Of course, many stories don't have this kind of happy ending. Millions of people are trapped in student loan debt with no hope to get from underneath it, let alone to invest in their future. Easy to get loans are part of the problem, and the universities that you're borrowing for they're equally as responsible. So what happens next on a structural level? What is the future or fate of universities?
1: Many lower tier universities are going to go bankrupt in the next like five years, in my opinion.
0: And this has already started. There's some nonprofit and for-profit universities that are already shutting their door. And that leads Kelly Peeler to another prediction, the unbundling of university services.
1: Think of a college like Time Warner Cable, where you really just want Wi-Fi, but they try to sell you on a landline phone, TV stuff, and you have to buy all of those things packaged together to just get the Wi-Fi that you wanted. That's kind of what a college is doing too. They're bundling services and charging you premium for it. They're charging you for the sports field, the academic research department, the food, the housing. You could theoretically get all of those things separately by them a la carte.
0: I've always liked this idea. If I want to take a class on business, or history, or the introduction of wines, which is an actual Cornell class, why can't I? Why can't I just buy it and get access to it? It's inevitable that universities change their business models for future generations. And none of this should stop you from going to school. The key is to think about the value you're getting for the money that you're spending. And it's not just college. You can apply the same exercise to business school, law school, or whatever school you plan to go to. Is it worth it? If it is, what's the cost? Did you negotiate and compare pricing and aid packages? Do you have cash to pay for it? And if you're gonna take out loans, do you have a plan to pay it back? And if you're not ready, it's okay to wait. The key is to rethink all of this. It's a huge investment of your time and it's a large expense. I'm Mesh Likhani, and thank you for listening. I'd like to thank our guests, Kelly Peeler and Joel Best Thanks to Gabby and Charlie for sharing their stories. Check out links for Money Mentor and Common Bond in the show notes. Remember, you can see the written format of this episode on thetalkmoney.com, along with other episodes. Thank you to Ryan Kailoth for producing and editing this episode of Talk Money, and to Max Miller for editing. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. As always, thanks to the folks at Anchor. Please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Tune in after the holiday break, and we'll learn how to invest in your future. Until next time. This episode is for informational purposes only, and listeners should not construe information, interviews, analysis, or other material embodied within the episode as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. This episode and its contents are intended to be of a general nature, and listeners are advised to seek professional advice in connection with any personal investment decisions. This has been a Lola Media production.